0: I'm going to invite you now to take a copy of the scriptures, if you have one, and turn to the passage that was just read for us, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. It's no secret that we live in a broken world. Intuitively, we feel this. Objectively, we can look all around us and see it everywhere, practically, that we look. Look. We know something is messed up in a world. A little later in our service, we're actually going to sing this line from a particular song Do you feel that the world is broken? And we're going to respond in song, We Do. We see this brokenness everywhere around us, but if we're honest with ourselves this morning and with one another, we feel that brokenness internally individually we are far from the people that we desire to be that we long to be the last few months we've used this definition for the gospel god the father by his spirit saves sinners and restores his creation through the perfect life sacrificial death and bodily resurrection of jesus You see, this gospel declares to us at least two things, personal forgiveness for sin, but also restoration of all things. And we will see all creation restored when Jesus returns in power and in glory. Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be corrected. Every self-promoting, self-worshipping leader will be humbled. Every oppressor Will be accountable. But what about the here and now? In the brokenness of our everyday life. In the words of Joe Hill's parody song, Long Haired Preacher, does the gospel offer nothing but pie in the sky by and by when we die? Does the gospel speak any hope into civilian bombings in Ukraine? or millions of refugees that will have left Ukraine by the time that crisis is over? Does the gospel speak any hope into the opioid epidemic here in Chattanooga and around our country? Or how about rising suicide trends or the epidemic of loneliness in our society? What about the individual brokenness that each one of us feels within our body and within our soul. Does the gospel enter those spaces right now and make a difference in meaningful ways? Or is it just pie in the sky, by and by, when we die? At Sojourn, we firmly believe that the gospel is for every person for all of life. And while the restoration of all things awaits a future consummation— We as Christians are entrusted with responsibilities in this world through this gospel. Responsibilities that reflect that future restoration. So, those responsibilities are not just individual and personal. Despite what some believe, religion is never merely a personal matter. It always carries consequences far beyond the individual. Now, last week, Pastor Nick brought us through verses 1 through 4 and reminded us from Colossians 3 that the position of a follower of Jesus has fundamentally changed. The one who follows Jesus has died with him, has been raised to new life, and our new life is hidden and secure in Jesus, untouchable with Christ in God. And because our position has fundamentally changed, that means our pursuits will also fundamentally change. He's now going to take that reality and he's going to press it home in really uncomfortable ways in the rest of Colossians chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 8, but now put away all the following. So Colossians 3 is now going to transition us from the good news of the gospel in, verse, in chapters 1 through 2 to the implications of that good news. We as followers of Jesus have been united to him, and that means something needs to happen. Colossians 3, the big idea is this. Since you are united to him, Jesus calls you to kill your idolatry Now I'm guessing you probably didn't come to church this morning expecting to hear that one of your responsibilities as a follower of Jesus is to kill anything But it's true Followers of Jesus we live in this tension this already not yet tension We have already been raised with Christ we have already been united to him. We are already living a resurrection life, a life in Christ marked by new creation realities. But our sin nature has not yet been eradicated. Our desires have not yet been purified. So this means false gods, idols, are constantly vying for our attention and our worship. And when I say we, I mean we. I don't mean you. False gods have been vying for my worship and my attention this week. And those idols lie to us. They tell us things like they're leading us on a path to true human flourishing. They're leading us to life and to happiness. They're actually telling us to come spend our lives and our money to buy bread and water that will never satisfy our hunger or slake our thirst. To spend our energies on things that will ultimately damn us from the eternal life of flourishing in the presence of God. That's what idols do. So Jesus isn't messing around. In Colossians 3 he's telling us our idols have to go and Paul is going to use two images to help us understand what he means. He talks about killing sin, putting it to death, and putting it away or putting it off. These metaphors help explain one another. We kill sin and its power by putting it off or putting it away, just like we would take off dirty clothes. Or to say it another way, we put off sin from our lives by considering it dead to us, and then killing its effects in our lives. It has no power over us. How many of you are or have followed the last couple of years, Masterpiece Theaters, All Creatures Great and Small? Anyone? Okay, there's like five of us. The rest of you need to get back or get on this train, okay? It's a great show. It's a story of veterinarian James Harriet. Say, really? It's a great show? I promise. It's a great show. He's living in the early 1900s in rural England, and in this scene on the screen, you have Harriet on the right, no, yes, he's on the right, with two other veterinarians, and they are covered completely in the contents of a cow's bloated stomach. Sorry, nasty, right? Pretty disgusting. Stained and soiled clothing. At the end of that particular episode, we see those same soiled clothes. They're still in their filthy condition, but they've been taken off. They're hanging on a hook by the front door. But how ridiculous would it be for those veterinarians to then go to those hooks and put those cloaks back on in order to go down to the pub for some food and drink? That would be disgusting. It'd be vile. It would make no sense. In a similar way, in Christ, the Christian has put off his or her former way of living, the filthy clothing of our fallenness, because God has spiritually clothed us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And because of that union with Jesus, God calls us to remove the filthy clothing of a sin-saturated life because the gospel has come to us. So now let's read verses 5 through 11 again with those thoughts in our mind as background. Verse 5, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge According to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barba- barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So, in those verses, in that paragraph, do you see the motivations that Paul is giving to us in order to stir us up to this serious work? Those motivations can be summed up in three words union with Christ. That's why we spent a whole sermon on that two weeks ago. We see that in verse 5. The verse begins with, therefore. He's connecting everything he's saying from that point on to the previous four verses. He's reminding us we've been united to Christ and we are to live in that reality. But our union in Christ shows up in verses 9 and 10. The follower of Jesus is described as putting off the old self, or we could say the old man, that, that is Adam, and we have put on the new man, the new self, Jesus Christ. And our union with Christ shows up again in verse 11, where Christ is said to be all and in all. You may have remembered from a couple weeks ago that our union with Christ means we've been incorporated into Christ and that Christ dwells in us. So now what Paul is going to do, he's going to move from those realities to address three areas of idolatry in verses 5 through 11. And those three areas are sexuality, speech, and prejudicial bias. Each of these areas is particularly painful for us to to look at, and to discover, because each gets at the heart of who we understand ourselves to be and how we relate to others. So this morning, we're going to look at just one of them, and this is our big idea for today. The gospel is for all of life, including our sexuality. Let's just consider our context for a moment. We live in the greater Chattanooga area. Chattanooga is a unique cross-section of deeply religious roots coupled with proudly progressive secularism. So on the one hand, we live in a region where many have only heard the church speak on sexuality as if it's something bad in and of itself. It's not much more it's not to be spoken of much more than to condemn and denounce those who are sexually active outside of the biblical norm and in the interest of truth there's little grace but on the other hand we are surrounded by those who sacrifice truth in the in the interest of a shallow grace they declare that we can be whatever we desire or whomever we desire when it comes to our sexuality, after all, love is love. Traditional norms are oppressive, they're outdated, they're probably even dangerous. But the gospel enters the picture and it presents to us a third way. It frees us to live in the reality of both grace and truth. After all, isn't that how Jesus came, full of grace and truth? So the gospel showers grace upon those who are undeserving. We all deserve only denunciation for our sin. But the gospel meets us with so much more. It meets us with love and peace and acceptance and forgiveness and joy if we will turn from our sin, repent of it, and trust Christ. And at the same time, that gospel, the same gospel, empowers us to pursue a beautiful standard designed by God for our flourishing. Have you considered it is a gift of God for Him to call us to live a life how he created us to live, including in the area of sexuality. So the gospel actually frees us from the hellfire and brimstone flogging of the sexually broken human beings that we are and who surround us while enabling us to speak grace and truth and hope to those who have heard only the enslaving and condemning lies of their culture concerning sexuality. And one of those false narratives is this. Your sexuality is the most important thing about you. That's one of the lies our culture tells us. Because God has been removed from the equation, so has human dignity. It's been taken away, especially in sexuality. Human sexuality becomes merely transactional, self-referential. Who you feel yourself to be sexually and who you desire to be with sexually are your most important and defining characteristics. So says the cultural water that you and I are swimming in. But the gospel enters the equation with the good news that we are so much more than merely sexual beings. We are image bearers of God. We are fallen image bearers, yes. So that means we are both broken and beautiful. Image bearers whom God is restoring to himself. And that gospel, that good news, speaks hope into our broken sexuality. In verses 5 through 7, Paul lists several sins connected to sexuality. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, or covetousness. Now what Paul is doing is he's drawing our minds back to the Ten Commandments. You may remember that the Ten Commandments begins with a statement of grace. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. That's grace right there. But he goes on, who brought you out of the land of slavery, the place of slavery. So the the Ten Commandments begins with a statement of grace, but they continue with resulting responsibilities for the people of God. Because of that grace, these things are true. Verses 3 through 4, do not have other gods besides me, do not make an idol for yourself. So all of these commands in some way flesh out these realities, the reality of idolatry. And if we read further, we come to the sixth commandment that deals specifically with sexual sin. He says, do not commit adultery. The seventh commandment deals specifically with covetousness. Including an aspect of sexuality. Verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, do you see the parallelism that Paul is now bringing into the book of Colossians? He's just spent two chapters detailing the grace of God in the gospel. And then he turns to our resulting responsibilities. So this entire list, from sexual immorality down through covetousness, all of it is a form of idolatry. Sex and sexuality are two of God's incredible gifts to mankind. Sex was God's idea. They were given for our flourishing and yet sex and sexuality has been so twisted and tainted by mankind's greatest enemy, Satan, that you may feel a tad bit uncomfortable with how often I've been saying those words in a public context like this. Follower of Jesus, God in his grace, has saved you from your sin and saved you to holiness. This is the good news of the gospel. God is radically committed to the expression of his goodness and benevolence in the lives of his creation. And that means that God will not stand idly by as any idol threatens the delight of his creation in him. After all, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that means that God will not allow sexual idolatry to sabotage you of present and eternal joy. Far from being repressive, God cares deeply about your sexuality. And friends, that is good news. Listen to how Tim Keller describes the Christians and the Christian sexual ethic in his little pamphlet, which I have here, how to reach the West again. This is what Tim Keller says. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent in sex. It made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power, but it made it rather about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not a lower view of sex. Modern culture's sexual logic that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization, that view ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than as a means to nurture a bond of covenant. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it can never finally be intimate. Culture's approach to sex has been bad for women in particular. See the Me Too movement for proof. The Christian view requires sex to always be super consensual, only for people ready to give their whole lives to each other in marriage. But here's the bad news. Each of us is sexually broken. Every single one of us. For many of us, our sexuality is broken in a way that wants to express itself towards the opposite gender in impure, lustful, and filthy ways. And our sexuality is broken that way. For others in this room... Our sexuality is broken away in a way that wants to express itself towards the same gender in ways that God never intended. And still for others of us, our sexuality is badly broken because of wicked things committed against us in which we had no say. But whether we are opposite-sex attracted or same-sex attracted, or whether we have experienced sexual abuse or any combination of these things, this fact remains, our sexuality is broken because humanity is fallen. And that's the bad news. The good news is that by means of the gospel, we have been freed from being defined by our broken sexuality. And we've been freed from worshiping our broken sexuality, whether that's expressed in, say, pornography or same-sex attraction or adultery. Follower of Jesus, since we have died and been raised with Christ, we are no longer enslaved to the broken sexuality that we were once enslaved to. And that is really, really, really good news. But it's also good news for the world in which we live because the individuals we interact with are no longer dehumanized and turned into objects. They are restored in our eyes to the image bearers that God made them. Image bearers who are worthy of being loved sacrificially, protected with dignity, and respected in every possible way. And all of a sudden, we find a theologically rich, gospel-saturated reason to end human trafficking, to fight pornography, to rebel against a culture that would have us bear anything and everything for the sake of fashion, and to reject sexuality as a necessary choice or source of entertainment in our media choices. Friends, the good news of the gospel is for all of life, including our broken sexuality. So is Christianity relevant for today? Or are we wasting our time with pie-in-the-sky-in-the-by-and-by-after-we-die sort of truths? In a world where sex and sexuality is for entertainment or self-definition or political positioning, where it's often weaponized against others, for the next few moments I would like to speak to three groups that do not often find themselves addressed with dignity and grace from those who claim the mantle of biblical Christianity. It is my hope and prayer that these words are shaped by the gospel. First, I'd like to speak to those friends among us who are experiencing some kind of gender dysphoria. To the person feeling the cultural pressure to define yourself by rejecting a binary understanding of gender and to embrace any one of the dozens of so-called alternate genders. I'd like to speak to the one questioning why he is a he when he feels like a she or vice versa. So to you, can I say this? Hear me clearly. Friend, the gospel speaks such good news to you. And second... You are so very welcome here. The good news of the gospel allows you to admit brokenness and confusion. That same gospel offers you forgiveness of sin. That same gospel enables you, by God's Spirit, to embrace your Heavenly Father's perfect and good will for you, a will that includes your biology. A biology that is broken, that is beautiful, but that He is redeeming. Broken because of Adam, beautiful because it comes from Him, and redeemed through Jesus Christ, the truly perfect human. And then that same gospel empowers you to live out your obedience to your Father in ways that are countercultural. And rather than bowing to cultural idols of self-defining sexuality and self-determined gender, by God's grace and in his power, united to the Lord Jesus, you can lean into true worship and obedience, submitting to his sovereignty as expressed in your biology. Because the gospel is good news for all of life, including those battling gender dysphoria. Second, to the friends among us who are same-sex attracted. And if the statistics hold true in here as they do outside of this room, which in my experience, that is the case, that would be as many as one in ten in this room who would say they have experienced some degree of same-sex attraction. So for a moment... Can I speak directly to you? Our goal at Sojourn is not to fill the world with more heterosexual human beings. The gospel is not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will make you a heterosexual. That is not the good news of the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the gospel. And our goal at Sojourn is to make disciples of Jesus. And that focus makes a difference. So let me be abundantly clear. We believe without apology that God gave sexuality to be expressed in a loving, committed covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. That is God's good design for human flourishing, and for his glory. And nothing has changed that, even though nine individuals in some court, in some country, decided it was time for traditions to change. Nothing has changed God's will. But... We also believe without apology in the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus, a gospel that frees us to admit the bad news first. We're all broken and sinful. We're all broken in our spirituality. We're all broken in our biology. We're all broken in our intellect. That's the nature of human depravity. But that same gospel includes the provision of God's grace for everyday living and the promise of restoration of all things in the future when our Lord returns. So I want you to hear this without confusion. If you experience same-sex attraction, whether or not you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are truly welcome here. We desire that sojourn be a safe place for people to explore Christianity and to evaluate the calls of Jesus upon their life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we want Sojourn to be a safe place to confess your your struggles in an appropriate circle and to live in light of the gospel. But whether or not you profess faith in Christ, we are going to call you to repentance from sin, all sin, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that we would call any one of us back to the gospel and our response to the gospel. Repentance and faith over and over and over and over and over and over again until faith is sight, until hope is not hope because it's reality, until we experience the depth of God's love in its fullness in eternity. But we do ask one thing of you if you are same-sex attracted. We will commit to walking with you in grace and love and prayer if you come step into the light. Open up to someone you trust about your struggle. Invite them in It has been my personal experience with the many young men in particular that I have worked with in this exact area that most of the time they have walked in the dark by themselves for literally decades in this area. I'm thinking of one young man in particular. At the age of four, he knew something was wrong. And it wasn't until he was in his mid-twenties that someone asked him specifically and he walked into the light. It is not God's will for your flourishing to battle this alone. We've been called into community with one another to provoke one another to love and good works. So sojourn, let's lean into this in the days ahead. And not just in this area, but especially in this area. So, third, I would like to speak to those who hear a sermon like this and find themselves being weighed down by guilt and by shame. Guilt for current sexual sin that seems to have trapped you, like pornography, or shame for past sexual sin committed by you or against you. Hear the good news of the gospel. You are so very much more than your past and present sins or failures or the sins committed against you. You are a broken and beautiful image bearer of God. In Christ, you are a beloved son or daughter. You are reconciled to the Father by the blood of his Son. He loved you, so he saved you. And your past sin or your current struggles have no power to alienate you fully or finally from the grace of God in Christ. And so the invitation to you today is the same repent and believe the gospel. Repent. If you're filled with shame, the gospel is calling you to repent from your unbelief. You say, Isaiah, what do you mean, repent from one unbelief if I'm filled with shame? Unbelief that God has forgiven you in Christ and cleared that sin. That he has dropped that sin in the deepest, darkest part of the ocean, never to bring it up again. And your shame is you dragging that sin up before God and condemning yourself before it when it's already been nailed to the cross of Christ. It is finished. The penalty has been paid. He took your shame so that he might clothe you with honor. And if you find yourself in the midst of yet another sexual failure, the gospel invites you again back daily and continuously to this reality. Repent, return to the faith in Christ who died for you to forgive you of your sin and free you by free you from its power regardless of our broken sexuality dear friend the good news and the call of the gospel is this since you have been risen with Christ seek those things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on earth, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. And until that time, May sojourn as a church, may you as an individual, may we as a people continuously declare that the gospel is for every person and for all of life, including our broken sexuality. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the reality of the gospel that you have taken the wretchedness of our sin and you have nailed it to the cross and we bear it no more. So we praise you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you That the gospel is not something that promises a future with no present implications. But rather that the gospel meets us in our muck, in our mire, in our mess, and in our brokenness right here, right now with good news. Father, I pray for the one weighed down by guilt this morning from sexual sin, God, would you free them from the power of that guilt by means of the gospel. For the one bearing shame from sin committed against them or sin that they have committed, God, would you meet them through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and free them from carrying that weight anymore. Father, for the one who has believed the lies of culture for so long, and perhaps is just now waking up to the realities that they are an image-bearer of you, God, would you, in your grace, meet them in the person of the Spirit, free them from the bondage of sin and slavery to culture, and open their eyes to the nature of reality in Christ. And Father, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.